You are listening to a Mining Stock Daily podcast. Hello and welcome to the AME podcast, Exploration Matters, the podcast for people interested in conversations about why exploration matters and the matters that impact successful exploration. Today is Tuesday, June 21st. To begin, I'd like to recognize that it's National Indigenous Peoples Day here in Canada. It's a day that gives us a chance to learn more about the rich and diverse cultures, voices, experiences and histories of First Nations, Inuit and Métis people in Canada. On today's episode, we are joined by two special guests. The first is Kendra Johnston, President and CEO of the Association for Mineral Exploration BC. I asked Kendra to reflect on her experience and talk us through the path of an exploration project from early days of prospecting right through to development and all the twists and turns a project may take along the way. Our second guest today is Jennifer Poirier, a partner at Dentons Canada. Jennifer shares her observations on recent trends in joint ventures and the types of deals companies are opting for in this post-pandemic world. Before we dive into today's episode, here's some news from around the province. With impeccable timing on National Indigenous Peoples Day, FPX Nickel announced that they have executed a new development memorandum of agreement for the Dekar Nickel District with the Binche Kiobu Society, representing the Kio families within the Biche Huetin. The agreement covers ongoing exploration, development and environmental monitoring activities at Dekar the company's flagship nickel property in central British Columbia. Also in central BC, Sun Summit Minerals announced on June 14 the commencement of its summer 2022 exploration program, including the mobilization of a crew to conduct a high-resolution airborne VTEM geophysical survey across its Buck property. Up to northwestern BC, Seabridge Gold reported on June 13 that core drilling will commence shortly at its Isket project. Work programs this summer will be drill testing copper gold targets at Bronson Slope and Quartz Rise, while geophysical surveys are underway to evaluate the North SNP target. And now, a word from today's sponsor. This episode of the AME podcast Exploration Matters is brought to you by Dentons Canada. Dentons Canada's mining team is your Canadian connection to mining around the world. The Dentons Canada team offers a truly global mining practice. They have extensive experience advising clients operating on every continent with both early stage and developed mining projects. No matter where you are in the course of your mineral exploration and development, Dentons is able to assist you at every stage of the process, including financing, construction, production, and reclamation. very first guest on the AME podcast is Kendra Johnston, President and CEO of the Association for Mineral Exploration. Kendra is a professional geologist who has spent almost 20 years working in various roles in mineral exploration, particularly at the early grassroots stage. 
She's conducted field mapping in the forests of northern Vancouver Island, gone gold prospecting on horseback in Nevada, and has run successful field programs in BC and Yukon. She's also spent several years in investor relations and has run a junior exploration company before taking on the role of president and CEO of AME in mid-2019. Now, we know that some listeners to this podcast know the ins and outs of exploration like the back of their hand, but for our new listeners or people new to the industry, I asked Kendra to tell us about the trajectory of a typical project from grassroots prospecting through to an operating mine. So there is quite a large cycle in mineral exploration and mining, and it really starts before mineral exploration. It starts with prospecting. It starts with uh, data analysis, data gathering, uh, data mining in some cases, and then going right through into field work, that very early discovery phase, uh, which is soil samples, uh, first pass drilling, digging trenches, using rock saws, that kind of, of activity and work. Uh, even early stage geophysics comes into play at that stage. And then as your project progresses, you maybe hit an interesting drill hole, you start to build out a resource, you bring more drills out onto site um, and start to outline what a, a potential ore body might look like. Once you've been able to define a resource and therefore be able to call it an ore body um, and it's economic, you've proved it up, you can then uh, you start to extract. You can then go through the permitting process, which is a, a long phase as well, uh, to potentially build a mine, build that mine, and then the next phase after mining is reclamation, and it, it sort of comes full circle to bringing the land back to its its natural use and open for prospecting again in the future. So over that time period, um, there is a lot of work that needs to be done in various phases of it. So the mineral exploration phase itself uh, is a minimum of at least 10 years, and that would be to get it to an advanced exploration phase. You could work a project for 50, 60 to 100 years in some cases before it ever becomes a mine. Many projects, in fact, one in 10,000 um, ever actually become a mine. So from a discovery perspective and an exploration perspective, really the, the, um, the normal situation, unfortunately, is failure when you look at the if if winning is to become an active mine. And so mineral exploration is really all about that um, potential for discovery, the potential for a new find, a new drill hit, the excitement behind that and uh, and what that means for the shareholders and uh, our ability to keep a project going and advancing. So you touched on uh, shareholders there. Let's talk a little bit about how you make money in this particular business, because until you actually get the material out of the ground uh, and process it and turn it into gold or copper or whatever it is, you're not making any money. So how do you make money at the exploration stage and, and what do you use it for? Yeah, so making money at the exploration stage from a shareholder perspective is all about timing and opportunity. So looking at a project, understanding what phase they're at, where where they're going, what the next steps are, what the anticipated news flow might be, and where those buying and selling opportunities are going to be. So for example, if you are investing in a company who has just found a new soil anomaly, and they have plans next season to take a drill rig out and do some drilling, you're investing 
with the hopes that that company is going to find gold or copper or whatever it is that they're exploring for in their drill core or their RC chips, whatever they're drilling for um, or however they're drilling and um, have an intersection that is large enough and of interest enough to spur more work and more drilling. And when you find an intersection that is of that size and, and of that uh, level of interest, it often spurs more buying, which then increases the share price and provides you an opportunity who got in early on the deal to potentially sell or if you're interested, invest more and continue on staying in for the next season and the next phase of work. So it's all about sort of the ups and downs and the seasonality in the market cycle, in the commodity price to try to time your buying opportunities uh, for the success of an exploration program. So what are some of the challenges? Because uh, I can see that, you know, you mentioned commodity cycle, you mentioned other, you know, conditions that are changing uh how how difficult is it to uh raise money and what are some of the options when it comes to uh you know putting money into the exploration stage yeah so here in vancouver well sorry here in british columbia we have 1100 publicly traded mineral exploration companies listed on the TSX Venture Exchange alone. There are other companies here that add to that number that are listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange. There's other companies, typically larger in size, that are listed on the big board TSX um, and companies that are listed in other places around the world. We also then have a whole variety of support companies, geological resources that, that support all of those publicly traded companies. But with that many companies in one region alone, it is so incredibly difficult to differentiate yourself, differentiate your project, differentiate um, the way you promote and what it is that you're doing in the activity. So the biggest challenge is the sheer volume of exploration companies that are out there. Um, and how, how you're going to stand out from the crowd. And so when you look at, at operating a, a junior program and from an investment perspective, there's so many factors that come into play when looking at how the share price is gonna be affected. So the obvious one and the, the most basic one that is that we all look at is that timing of exploration work and where that's gonna go over time, what the plan is, but when you factor in permitting timeframes, when you factor in environmental regulations and protocols and uh, responsible methods out in the field, when you factor in um, community engagement and consultation and relationships that are, are just in that building um, phase that take time to, to initiate and to build, uh, relationships with local governments as well. And there's a variety of different phases of government, of course, as well, from municipal all the way up to federal and, and how that plays in. And then you have uh, other surrounding properties and other relationships with local explorers to your field site uh, where you might be sharing a drill rig or you might be sharing a helicopter um, and your service and supply. So there's so many things that come together that need to align perfectly with timing along with seasonality, weather, and again, we go back to market cycles and all these things. So the challenges, I would say, 
are are identifying yourself, being able to to promote and talk about yourself, um, making yourself different from another, but also the sheer fact that you need to align all of these pieces and they need to come together. And that is uh, takes a little bit of wizardry skills to be able to do, but um, is also, you know, we're well practiced at it at this industry and, and we've been able to build it over over the years and there are processes in place to help um, streamline some of those factors. And what does success look like in an exploration project? Aside from drilling, uh, you know, a great drill result, what about, um, you know, what are those milestones that take it to the next level, like getting the interest of a big company or uh, joining with another company or growing? Because we're kind of the startups of, of mineral exploration. So, so what does success look like when you step up to that next level? Yeah, in a lot of ways, where we are the research and development arms of the major minds. And so success, depending on who you are, uh, looks very different. Success can be geological, it can be a great drill result, or it can be creating a mine and selling a mine. Um, it can also be purely a share play. It can be a great uh, new intercept that increases the share price and creates a lot of interest and buzz about your company. So success is measured in a variety of different aspects depending on who you are, but there are definite steps in the growth pattern and projection behind a company of how it goes from that very junior discovery phase company into a major project, a major development, and a mine site itself. And so typically companies uh, will work along. They will realize that they're getting to a phase that uh, they can't handle anymore uh, economically. They don't have the dollars to put in or they don't have the, the share capital to, uh, to be able to do the next phase of their project, which is potentially quite large. And so you'll start to see companies coming together um, either by mergers or perhaps by joint ventures and bring that um, the knowledge of two teams together and the finances and resources of two teams together. And joint ventures are really interesting because they can be done in so many different ways with so many different um, partnership pieces to them, but it also outlines uh, a lot of the challenges going forward and, and what that might look like um, down the road. So it, it, uh, it forces you in some ways to think long-term about the project and how it will develop and how those decisions are going to be made. Um, but after that, if you continue to progress, uh, hopefully you then have two partners. If you've joined ventured a project or merged, um, you have two parties that are progressing and pushing it forward, which means double the promotion, double the, the conversation and the buzz and the energy around that project. Um, and again, double the resources to put into it financially. So it, it allows you to build it at a slightly faster pace and perhaps get a major interested and involved and they might come into the partnership as well. And eventually it's, it's very rare for a junior exploration company to become a miner. So eventually most junior companies who see that kind of success are sold uh, to major companies and uh, produced from that stage forward. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, the next interview we've got on today's episode is uh, an interview with Jennifer Poirier, who is a partner at Denton's. Uh, and she has a lot of experience in um, putting together these deals for uh, companies of all sizes getting together on different projects. Um, and so we dig into some of the trends she's seen in Canada and globally, um, particularly the major, major joint ventures. So, you know, the, the major and junior uh, partnerships are, are still happening, but there's a trend towards these major, major uh, joint ventures. So 
uh, I encourage you to hang around and, and listen to that, of course. Um, but taking a step back from the deals themselves and the, the details of the deals, how do they come together? Like, let's talk about how deals start, because you've been uh, kind of looking at this from a lot of different angles, but particularly from that junior explorer perspective. So aside from you know promoting yourself and getting noticed, what, what are some of the great places to be, uh, to be discovered <laughs> for yeah. these uh, partnerships? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to answer that. But um, I do just want to note uh, the fact that Jennifer Poirier is, is on next. She is uh, a fabulous person. I've been lucky enough to know her for uh, for many years. And uh, I, I know she's uh, quite skilled at what she does. So uh, I think that'll be a really great interview. I, I look forward to sticking around and hearing it as well. Um, so yeah, there's, there's lots of opportunity for people to network. I mean, we have such a great industry from that perspective of, of building relationships one in, with one another. And um, I think it really comes from the culture of our industry and and that camp life experience where we've all got to you know live in tents together and and be in remote project locations that you know the, the people that are on site with you are the folks that you rely on day in and day out from a health and safety perspective for a social perspective they're they're really uh, in a lot of ways become your family pretty quickly so um, that creates a really interesting culture but when we all come together at you know places like roundup which obviously is is run by ame and and one of my favorite events if i can be that biased and bold to say that um, but also of course you know pdac and some of our regional conferences from uh, the Kamloops exploration group puts on a wonderful conference as well as uh, Rock Talks up in Smithers, it really provides an opportunity for uh, majors in particular to come out in somewhat a not so obvious fashion and really look at the rocks. And, and I think about Roundup in particular and the, the wonderful core shack that we have there provides such a great opportunity for, for people who are looking for new projects as corporate development folks to come in and, and really see what's coming out of the ground to analyze the the rocks the alteration processes the minerals the relationships between the different minerals and the the mineralogy that's uh, that comes with that as well as potentially the the metallurgical challenges that might come with that so it provides an opportunity without having to get on a plane and go up to site um, and really do a an in-depth analysis when you can bring rocks to them so that networking opportunity um to really dive into a project, understand a potential resource, understand the trajectory of the project. Um, And then the hearsay that happens, right? When we're such a a large community that is such a family, we do have a lot of discussions over beer in a pub or um, over coffee down the street at the coffee shop. We we just, we talk a lot about what we do because we're all so passionate about it, uh, that we want to share the great stories and the challenges and the the scientific uh, issues that we're having so that we can find solutions. So there's some really phenomenal grassroots uh, opportunities for that conversation to happen. And in particular for the majors to learn about uh, some of those junior projects. Fantastic. Uh, Well, I just want to thank you for your time today and for being our very first guest on the new AME Exploration Matters podcast. Uh, We appreciate your time and I'm sure we'll have you on again. Uh, So thank you for everything. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to listening to, to Jennifer's interview as well. Welcome back to the AME podcast, Exploration Matters. 
Our second guest on today's episode is Jennifer Poirier, a partner at Dentons Canada. Jennifer became involved in mining early in her career and has experience reviewing public disclosure documents and in setting up mergers and acquisitions between mining and exploration companies. In particular, she has experience in the commercial agreements that govern the relationships between companies as they attempt to take a project from exploration, through development and to a profitable mine. I began my conversation with Jennifer, asking her about the trends that she's observed in joint venture agreements in recent years. One particularly interesting trend has been that uh, while typically, and and still commonly, but while typically uh, the joint ventures would be uh, entered into between a company that would be considered more of a junior party and, and as well as a senior party, and quite often the junior party would be the one that would have the property uh, but not necessarily the funding to facilitate exploration and development. So that's where the major would come in. But an interesting trend has been that major major mining companies are actually joint venturing with other major joint venture companies, uh, along with the, the increase of um, joint ventures amongst major uh, companies together without necessarily the uh, participation of a junior is that we're getting 50-50 joint ventures. And that's often a you know a signal that neither party wants to be considered in control or not in control. So we end up with these 50-50 joint ventures, uh, which themselves create a whole new level of, of challenges and things to consider, uh, given that there has to be mechanisms put in place that the parties agree to for purposes of settling deadlocks um, and for, for operational uh from operational perspective, often the majority in the joint venture would be the operator, the, comp- the, the party that would actually carry out the various exploration and development programs. Yep. In a 50-50 joint venture, there's usually a mechanism by which the operator will, will switch and swap as between uh, the two parties. Uh, we've seen some recent examples over the past couple of years um, that I'm sure a lot of people have heard of, uh, the Barrick and Newmont joint venture. Um, that was a 61 and a half interest for Barrick, 38 and a half for Newmont. And that was intended to leverage their own um, assets in Nevada and, and combine forces essentially to uh, leverage off of each other's um, skill set, technology, resources that they had in the area. Whereas previously, these, these major companies may have decided to go at it alone and not, not try and um, you know, leverage off of each other. Another one is Newmont Corporation and Kirkland Lake Gold. Um, they entered into a sort of strategic alliance type of agreement where they're jointly assessing uh, opportunities uh, around the uh, respective parties' assets in Ontario. And finally, the 50-50 joint venture between Newmont Corporation and Agnico Eagle Mines. Um, and that was with respect to some gold targets in Colombia. And um, as some may be aware, very recently, Agnico completed its acquisition of Kirkland Lake Gold. So it's interesting to see how there's very there's a lot of overlaps between all these different joint ventures and the, the parties involved. Absolutely. If I could jump in and just ask you, uh, what does it mean for the junior explorers that are, like for example, the Barrick and Newmont joint venture in Nevada? So there's a lot of uh, smaller companies operating around the edges of those big companies. What do these kind of major, major joint ventures mean for the little, the, the little teams that are working around the edges? 
I mean, it very well could in, like, potentially increase some, some, you know, traffic about that area in particular and, um, you know, maybe result in another separate major um, come, you know, coming in and potentially exploring and, and kicking the tires on, on uh, another uh, junior's property in the same area. Um, but of course, we know that the uh, near that the fact that the this joint venture is in existence um, amongst these majors obviously doesn't guarantee anything. Uh, so the concept of neurology does not uh, does not necessarily apply. Mm-hmm. So definitely, I would say that um, the activity in general, though, that we're seeing is that joint ventures are going to continue to be something of quite a bit of relevance in this in this market now, especially we all know the global economic crisis and um, you know obviously political geopolitical issues going on right now, um, and not to mention uh, COVID nineteen impacts. There actually may be a rise of joint ventures, or or there has historically been a rise in joint ventures um, after periods of that kind of economic uncertainty. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's some some thoughts behind why that's the case, including, for instance, because it's it's about sharing and allocating risk, not trying to go in at some, you know, go at it alone and, you know, risk bankruptcy because of the inability to get, obtain funding uh, as and when needed. So joint ventures are, are an interesting way of sharing both the benefit and the risks of the venture. Yep. They also provide uh, for pretty clear exit mechanisms. So the exit mechanisms that are provided in the joint venture agreements can also make that type of transaction attractive as opposed to going out and doing a straight asset purchase agreement where the entire property is purchased for a lump sum. The uh, the joint venture, the parties can work towards it for as long as they deem uh, relevant to both of them. And, and if one of them did want out, there are clear exit strategies drafted and agreed to at the very beginning. Um, Can you kind of take us behind the curtain for a minute and talk a little bit about the negotiations behind the scenes without naming anyone in particular, but what are some of the, um, you know, the differences in negotiating joint ventures between say two majors versus a major and a, a junior or, you know, how does, how does it work behind the scenes? What are the different trends that you're seeing there? It's interesting because the um, joint venture agreements when negotiating between two majors and often this is the case when it's in particular a 50-50 joint venture, there are, there's a lot more upfront negotiation about things like who's, who gets to be the operator. Um, you know, if there's a vote that has to be had, what's the tie-breaking or deal deadlock mechanism? Uh, sometimes that the deadlock is, is the nuclear option where it essentially the parties terminate the joint venture. Other ones contemplate you know, having some sort of internal dispute resolution followed by external dispute resolution. But all that to say that there's a lot of, a lot more work, a lot more effort is paid, I guess, um, to negotiating the exact terms from tip to tail of this entire transaction. Um, And even going so far as if it's, if it's an earn-in type of agreement and, and neither party uh, the earning hasn't actually crystallized, meaning the one party hasn't yet earned an interest in the property. Um, often in the case of the junior um, negotiations, they, the transaction may go ahead with only having the earning and option agreement drafted with uh, some preliminary terms for the joint venture agreement 
uh, set out in the option agreement, but to save cost, time, expense, um, often the full text of the joint venture agreement or shareholder agreement, however the joint venture is structured, is actually kind of kicked down the road uh, to a later date when some viability of, of the option is determined and, and it's, you know, sort of making sure that the party that's that's in, earning into your property is actually, you know, going to stay there and eventually be in a joint venture with you. Yep. Whereas yep. with the majors, you definitely see full tip-to-tail negotiation um, up front of, of everything and, you know, documents now that could land, last a li- the lifespan of a mine potentially. Mm. So what is it about these properties that you think uh, companies are finding attractive in each other? Like what are some of the negotiating things that I guess are taken off the table when these characteristics are in place? So I guess what I'm saying is what characteristics of a project um, are attractive to joint venture partners? Um, so that's interesting. It, it can definitely vary. Some, for instance, uh, parties are very interested because they, they've decided that there's a particular deposit that you know, they might have the technology to actually extract economically, whereas um, you know, another company may not have interest in that same deposit because of not having access to that technology. Um, often, conversely, the uh, junior can often have an interest in a far smaller size deposit from a commercial perspective than what one of the majors may be uh, interested in pursuing. So that's when you can end up in situations where a bunch, you know, the earn-in monies are expended and the decision is ultimately made that the major does not actually exercise its option to earn in Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, the size of the deposit or the anticipated size of the deposit did not meet with what, uh, the expectations were for the the exploration mandate from corporate uh, yep. of those companies, um, and you know the third the junior in that case though still ends up with you know had a, a great partner come in and, and work on their property for a bit. Uh, the money still would have invested into exploration of the project, and so they still maintain that information and can sort of try to leverage off that themselves going forward and give, it gives themselves a better understanding of their own project as well, just by having the major involved. Yeah, exactly. I guess you have to uh, get your ducks in a row and and know how to present that project to potential partners, which you might have to do more than once <laughs> in the life of a project. You definitely will see that there are, uh, there's a lot of change in, changing in, of hands with uh, exploration projects and as I said, it could be because, you know, there's a particular type of deposit that one company is looking for and it just wasn't there to the magnitude that they expected. Yep. Um, and, you know, another company may come in right after and be looking at a different um, base metal and say, no, nope, this actually does look, look like something that we're interested in. So, yeah, yeah. It's, definitely, it's definitely not a one and done. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and what about critical minerals? Like, have you seen them mentioned perhaps more often in negotiations now? Um, like you were saying, some one company might not be interested, but a second com- company comes along who's particularly interested in, say, battery metals or or something like that. Yes, that's a that's a very good point. So, under the uh, Investment Canada Act, that national security uh, review was tightened up uh, a couple of years ago now, and 
essentially there are there's a list of 11 different factors that can be considered as to whether or not um, a pro potential project that involves foreign investment and that means anything outside of Canada yep. um, whether it could have uh, national security risks or pose national security risks and so as part of that there is a list um, there's also a similar list in the U.S. Um, slight differences but in Canada it's a list of 31 uh, critical minerals mm -hmm. and as you mentioned they include battery metals so lithium is on there um, one as one of the notable, uh, obviously, battery metals that uh, is being sought right now. There's all, yep. all cobalt is on there as well. Um, all sorts of helium as well, potash, tin, titanium, yep, nickel, copper, and zinc. But uh, noticeably, gold is not on the list. Yes. <laughs> so does that mean um, just kind of? to help me understand this in plain language is that if a project has one of these 11 elements in it, that there are, there's like a cap on how much foreign investment can go into that project. Well, they may actually, depending on the track, because it's kind of reviewed on a case by case basis, the actual transaction itself may be not approved by investment Canada act. And it can uh, actually put a complete stop to the transaction. Okay. So in your role, you would help them negotiate, you know, the agreement and then that would go to get approved and that's where it might be stopped. Yeah. And, and that's when negotiating these agreements, that's what the value, it's very valuable to have sort of um, regulatory team members that are, that are familiar with the Investment Canada Act regime and review process yep. um, so that we have, you know, a better chance of, of understanding what it is that the concerns might be and, and look to address those concerns in the drafting of the agreements and in the submission documents that are made uh, to hopefully, um, you know, make for a smoother process in, in getting the approval. So one example in uh, December 2020 where the federal cabinet blocked the Shandong Gold Mining Company from acquiring TMAC Resources, which is a Canadian gold company, mm -hmm. um, reportedly for national security reasons. Um, so it's on the basis of national security, but it was not particularly the critical minerals list that came into play because the resource um, at, at play there was gold. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, gold is not on the critical minerals list. But for the security reasons cited, they were, uh, for example, that, um, that there was a state, their state-owned status of Shandong and the proximity of TMAC resources and its properties to a military early warning system and to the Northwest Passage. So those were cited as national security reasons as to why that transaction was not approved. Um, and similarly, in the U.S., Australia, other jurisdictions are, are adopting similar similar critical minerals lists and similar um, heightened review of investments coming in internationally. Wow. So many more elements other than, you know, the size of what's in the ground. There's <laughs> a lot more going on at the surface, that's for sure. Definitely. So looking into your crystal ball, uh, just to kind of wrap things up, you've seen the trends that are happening so far and we're not making predictions about the future, but what direction do you think negotiations are going in when it comes to joint ventures? This is just for information only. Um, but it is still, it is looking like, as I alluded to earlier, that uh, I think joint ventures are going to be a, 
potentially viable option for companies that are trying to recover from all this economic turmoil, including all of the starts and stops that have been caused by COVID. Because mm-hmm. um, COVID has had, obviously it has, COVID has impacted every business, um, but it's impacted joint ventures a little bit differently because, um, you know, the decisions have to get made jointly. It's not it's not one party's decision to put a mine on care and maintenance and just wait and see and maybe focus on another transact, another project. Yep. Uh, so there are nuances that uh, COVID specifically played with, uh, with the joint ventures, but, but it does still look like um, in this time and, and just the general risk adversity that, that is likely to uh, come out of all of this economic downturn would be, uh, you know, that the joint ventures will continue to be an attractive vehicle for uh, pursuing a property, mineral property or development. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I think, I don't know, I feel like we should have you on once a year to to check in on the joint venture landscape. (laughs) Yeah, see if there are new changes. It's going to be interesting, like I said, to see more and more of these negotiated, you know, sort of post-COVID, post post-economic downturn and, you know, the lessons that we've learned now from things like COVID and how that's mm. going to impact joint venture agreements in particular, the resources that are available for emergency funding and, you know, what the agreement says about that. That's a, it's a whole nother topic. <laughs> a whole nother topic. <laughs> well, thank you, Jennifer Poyer from Denton's. Um, we appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the AME podcast, Exploration Matters, a Mining Stock Daily partner production. I'm your host, Kylie Williams. And once again, I'd like to thank today's episode sponsor, Denton's Canada. If you would like more information about today's episode, please visit amebc.ca. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. The Association for Mineral Exploration BC and Mining Stock Daily are not responsible for any loss arising from any decision connected to the information presented herein. Please do your research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.